0: Ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the London School of Economics for this evening's event. My name is Craig Calhoun. I'm the director of the LSE and it is an honor for me to welcome Professor Edmund Phelps to the LSE for the Oakshot Memorial Lecture. Michael Oakeshott was one of the most important philosophers and political thinkers of the 20th century as well as an iconic figure in the history of the LSE He's important, um, among other things, in telling the history of the LSE since the reputation of the LSE as a left-wing institution is always just a little bit misleading. And Michael was, among other things, one of the great conservative thinkers um, of our history. And the LSE has, has made important contributions to political thought and, more broadly, social and economic thought across the spectrum. Michael made contributions as well to philosophy and history, religion, education, his publications include Experience and Its Modes, Social and Political Doctrines of Contemporary Europe, a famous edition of Hobbes' Leviathan, The Voice of Poetry in the Conversation of Mankind, Rationalism in Politics, probably his most famous essay, Hobbes and Civil Association on Human Conduct and on History. LSE is extremely grateful to the donor whose support has made these lectures possible. For those who are interested in the next Oakshot Lecture, this will take place on the 12th of November, and we'll see Jesse Norman, MP, speak on (coughs) Burke, Oakshot, and the intellectual roots of modern conservatism. But without further ado, let's turn to tonight's event with Professor Edmund Phelps. As I'm sure you're all aware, Professor Phelps is the 2006 Nobel Laureate in Economics and the director of the Center on Capitalism and Society at Columbia University. His career has been devoted to two intertwined aims, to call into question the preconceptions about education, information, and knowledge to which mainstream economics has clung, replacing them with the modern notions necessary to describe the successful operations of a modern economy, and to put people as we know them with their imperfect knowledge, understanding, and expectations back into economic models. (laughs) He is the author of several books, the most recent of which is Mass Flourishing, How Grassroots Innovation Created Jobs, Challenge, and Change. It's a book I commend to you, and indeed a book which is (coughs) available outside for those of you who might like to buy it and bring it in for a signing afterwards. The format of this evening will be split in two halves. Firstly, Professor Phelps will give his lecture on the themes of this most recent book, And the second half will be the chance for you to put your questions to Professor Phelps. We should have around 40 minutes for that second part. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSE Phelps. Now, would you give a warm welcome to Professor Phelps.
1: Distinguished guests ladies and gentlemen colleagues students um, it's a great honor to be invited to give the Michael Oakeshott lecture and a great pleasure to be able to introduce my book mass flourishing to you uh, the book is a history of the rise and decline also a plea for a revival of what I call modern economies As I see it, they arose in the 19th century, first in Britain and America around 1820, later Germany and France, and functioned well to the middle of the 20th century. Their success was the marvel of the world. They generated mass prosperity, material and non-material. Other nations, through trade flows and technological transfers, could tap into the material gains, mainly wage gains, but the non-material gains could not be transferred. Never before had such prosperity been in the reach of large and increasing numbers. Prior to the first modern economies, economic knowledge, hence productivity, was virtually stagnant even in the economies that were the jewels of mercantile capitalism, Spain and Holland. The concept of job satisfaction was unknown. For me, the solitary shepherd, bored with the routine and isolated, symbolized that system. The mass prosperity was brought by mass innovating. Though the historians spoke only of resources, efficiencies, and increasing returns to scale, in Britain and America especially, there was a welter of innovations in new products and, and methods, large and small, not just headline innovations. In 1840s Britain, startup enterprises were forming so fast that parliament, wearying of issuing charters, passed the Joint Stock Act of 1844. In an 1858 lecture, Abraham Lincoln said of America that there was a perfect rage for the new, a rage that was rife among makers of products, I think, not just users, which Lincoln had in mind. Where did the ideas that led to innovation come from? Contrary to the German historical school and young Joseph Schumpeter, the modern economy did not produce mass innovation through a succession of generally exogenous discoveries by scientists and and navigators, and commercial applications of these discoveries by entrepreneurs. Modern economies possess their own dynamism their own desire, capacity, and scope to innovate. With this dynamism, they were capable, on a good day at any rate, of indigenous innovation, not just the exogenous innovation of um, Schumpeter and the German Historical School. The system of dynamism was more effective the more open it was to contributors down to the grassroots, and the modern economies were rather open to the grassroots. They produced a massive outbreak of tinkering, imagining, and experimenting. Human resources of initiative and imagination were devoted to innovating, not just to producing and trading. Dynamism ran high to the middle of the 20th century. No wonder there was mass prosperity. No economy before drew on the imagination of a wide range of the nation's minds, a large number of the nation's minds uh, as well. Uh, This dynamism, of course, required entrepreneurs and financiers, just as the sporadic innovations of the mercantile period did. Their judgment and expertise was needed. Yet dynamism further required innovators. Innovators were needed with the insight, imaginativeness, and vision to dream up new products that might work well and change practice. Yet the idea that business activity—yet the, the, there is an idea um, <clears throat> that that business activity in a free market can always be depended on to possess uh, the dynamism for indigenous innovation, and I—that that is a, a serious mistake. The right stuff is required. Innovators often have to buck conventional thinking, or they have to break away from traditional ties. Innovating also requires a social and political climate that is receptive to innovations, despite the disruptions that they are apt to cause. Was this a modern economy good? Propaganda to the contrary, notwithstanding, modern economies brought an endless rise of material benefits, including rising productivity and wages, ever healthier products, rising longevity, decreasing poverty and pauperism, and widening inclusion. The most radical impact of the new economies was non-material, changing the very nature of life and work where those new economies took root. Individuals prospered from doing rewarding things. There were the experiential and existential rewards from working on new problems, gathering insights, imagining and creating novel things, testing them in the workplace, trying them out in the marketplace. The new regimes offered new heights to scale, resulting in previously unseen possibilities for self-realization at all levels of society. We might call this prospering. The adventurous An exploratory spirit was reflected also in the arts of the period. A chapter in the book, which I enjoyed writing, uh, looks at music, fiction, and painting for corroborative evidence of the new (coughs) experience of work. This transformation depended, of course, on the development of institutions that enabled dynamism, including various legal rights, laws governing corporations, and financial institutions. The real crux, though, and one not given enough weight until now, is the rise of modern values, the spread of modern attitudes, precepts, and beliefs. These modern values can roughly be grouped under the headings of individualism, thinking for yourself, working for yourself, willingness to break from one's group, break from convention. Vitalism, that's relishing challenges, overcoming obstacles, taking initiative, acting on the world. And finally, self-expression, imagining and creating, demonstrating a unique insight by testing it, voyaging into the unknown in hopes of making a mark on the world. Uh, Perhaps it's useful to remark that these activities or aspirations are often said to be human rights. We have a right. We have rights. We have a right to, to, to do those things. The slow accretion of these modern values, the book argues, finally achieved the critical mass necessary to fuel the desire in individuals to innovate, to spur uh, the building of capabilities required to innovate, and to boost the willingness in society to give a wide scope for innovation. Yet the prevalence of modern values may not be sufficient. There may be countervailing values. Opponents of innovation may stifle the expression of modern values. The book uh, documents that the modern values arose with the onset of the modern era in, in the terminology of Jacques Barzin, roughly from 1490 to 1940, from the late Renaissance through the Enlightenment and well into the 19th century. The book argues that these values paralleled the elements in the the modern conception of the good life, the basic concept of which, the meaning of which, uh, started with Aristotle. Uh, There was Pico della Mirandola with his uh, revolutionary suggestion that people are born with creativity. Uh, Martin Luther, with his revolutionary idea that uh, people should think for themselves. Uh, Montaigne, with his uh, uh, notion of um, of personal development and and becoming becoming something different in in the course of experience. Cervantes, uh, meeting challenges. Shakespeare, uh, struggling to act, Hume, imagination, Hegel, acting on the word, Kierkegaard, voyaging into the unknown, Nietzsche, overcoming hurdles, William James, living fearlessly, and Henri Bergson, back to becoming. Um, (coughs) Philosophers and humanists use the word flourishing to characterize this substance of the good life. And it it must strike you, I suppose it strikes you, that the prospering that I was describing before, all those non-material, experiential, existential uh, rewards from um, Exploring and experimenting and uh, dreaming and uh, conceiving uh, new things and developing uh, all those, all that prospering uh, that that came to economies of dynamism is a perfect specimen of the flourishing that philosophers and humanists uh, have widely agreed is in substance. Uh, the good life. Modern values stir a desire to flourish. Of course, this philosophical heritage belonged to the world, and certainly to all of the Western nations, but it is implicit in the book's thesis that some of them did not embrace it strongly enough to incorporate it into their values, the ones they act on in a day-to-day, on a day-to-day basis. Ultimately, severe reactions against the modern economies occurred. The fluctuations and disparities in outcomes, and even in prospects, typical of modern economies, and the endemic unemployment caused a socialist reaction to the modern economies. Some nations moved part of the way toward a socialist economy, seeing more planning and more extensive state ownership as a step on the way to stability, equality, and uh, reduced unemployment. Generally speaking, the socialists sought the greater development of people's capacities to produce, but showed no consideration or awareness of the deeper goals of individuals the non-material rewards deriving from a life of self-expression such as exploration and creativity. And they failed to provide in their economic system for innovation. The rudderlessness of the modern economies and the social upheaval that they were able to uh, cause. Uh, brought a corporatist reaction, having overtones of the traditional values found in the Middle Ages, in in the feudal economies, and even the mercantile economies of later centuries. Corporatists hated new enterprises invading towns. They hated new money upsetting traditional ways, wealth, and status. And they hated the lack of society's control over the economy. The essence of, the, of corporatist thought, I believe, was the profound revolt against individualism and self-expression. For corporatists, what mattered was the good of the nation, not the individual. And the government got to decide what is good for the nation. The corporatist economy they built replaced competition and the market with a tripartite or multipartite system of pressure groups interfacing each other and the state. The corporatist institutions and policies aimed at coordination across the economy, social protection, and significant control over some industries. These, in th- these economies were also conspicuous for their patronage and lobbying, not to mention cronyism and nepotism, uh, for going outside the market. Corporatists, especially Mussolini, uh, promised innovation and thus higher productivity, but uh, without doing much to arrange to arrange it. Though corporatists and socialists claim their their systems would boost economic performance on their measures, the data show otherwise. Socialist economies did not excel at employment. Corporatist economies did not excel at growth. These economies proved so woefully lacking in innovation, indigenous or even exogenous, that they were unable to realize uh, their own goals. The central thesis of my book about the link from modern values to uh, to uh, innovation and, hence, job satisfaction, um, is tested in the book. Um, Using household survey data, um, I use the um, prevalence of uh, selected values reported in household surveys to represent the strength of modern values, and and I use uh, uh, reported job satisfaction as a measure of. Uh, the degree or importance of flourishing in a nation. If the thesis is right, we should expect that a population largely subscribing to modern values will forge enterprises, careers, and jobs that are interesting, involve initiative, offer change, and present challenges, such as competition. The finding is that nations scoring strongly in modern attitudes do tend to score high in job satisfaction. The inference is that there's more indigenous innovation going on there. They develop economies with enough dynamism to generate the jobs and careers that will enable enable them to flourish. Nations where values are prevailingly traditional tend to report mediocre or poor job satisfaction. Now <clears throat> that's mostly the twenties and thirties. The nations that, though in some cases there there are examples after that, the nations that strayed from the the from the um, from, from having modern economies uh, after the war uh, gained uh, regained uh, economic growth for a time. But uh, mounting evidence of a de- deterioration in the dynamism of these economies in the, in the force of indigenous innovation uh, was, ania- was undeniable. In Britain and Germany later France the damage to indigenous innovation appears to have been severe, though for a long time concealed by continuing technology transfers from America as long as the supply lasted, which was the late 90s. In America, growth of productivity, growth of total factor productivity to be (coughs) more accurate, fell almost in half between the period 1922 to 72 and the period 1973 to 2012, with the exception of the years of the internet build-out, 1996 to 2004, when there was a pickup in in, uh, the rate of growth of total factor productivity. In all these nations, America, France, Britain, and Germany, Unemployment expanded and previous gains in inclusion were lost. Apparently, indigenous innovation had sagged, dragging job satisfaction down with it, not only in America, but in in all those uh, once dynamic nations. In the case of Britain and Germany, it's much more difficult to to find a year uh, in which uh, growth and innovation suddenly drops. Um, Many factors contributed to the decline of dynamism and innovation, in my view. Uh, There was a new short-termism in corporate management on top of the short-termism that was already pointed to by Gardner Means uh, in uh, a famous 1932 book. Uh, There was um, maljudgment in the banking industry, irresponsibility, we might say, in the banking industry, and uh, fiscal irresponsibility in the government. And I think, to some extent, behind that, as a, a, a rise of, of materialism, rise of uh, materialism. Um, <clears throat> what may be the most important is that important source of the decline of dynamism is that modern values, while they may have been holding up, are, came to be hamstrung by a resurgency of traditional anti-modern values. I don't say that that that. that All traditional values have had a resurgency, but I'm saying that there's been a resurgency of some traditional values that uh, operate to hamstring uh, innovation. As a result, a new corporatism has come to the American economy, and I believe also to, to European economies. In this new corporatism, companies are less interested in innovation than in rent-seeking. Elites in government play a large role in influencing the directions of a nation's attempts at innovating. And those who would like to try to develop their own ideas for innovation must overcome the pull of family and friends and the greater prestige these days of other sorts of lives. By focusing I want, to, I want to say that by focusing on material objectives, uh, partisans of both corporatism and capitalism uh, are missing the point. That it is that it is the non-material rewards of modern capitalism, the good life that it makes possible, that are the distinct that that are its distinctive. Gifts to to society. A good economy, in this sense, is 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 is, 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 uh, is it has to be one that fosters and permits uh, the good life, a life of flourishing, for its participants. The materialist formulations of both the left and the right overlook the world of creation of exploring and imagining, and the resulting personal growth. The good life is a wild ride through an economy with an open future, an economy offering unimagined rewards, a life of Kierkegaardian mystery, Nietzschean challenge, and Bergsonian becoming. Okay, you might say, maybe that's what a good economy has to do but is all but is that just what about justice and the good economy Uh, I won't begin to um, try to um, summarize that chapter but I but I will say that uh, I argue that um, a modern economy to be just in a Rawlsian sense must provide the opportunity for the good life to those who aspire it. Justice requires uh, that people have access to to the good life. And and <clears throat> but justice also requires that the government take measures uh, to Raise the prospects of the good life of those persons who have the poorest prospects of that. Uh, to raise to raise those prospects as high as is possible. Um, things get more complicated if we suppose that not everybody in society wants to have the good life as. Uh, Uh, in in the modern conception that that I uh, sketched Um, but I won't be able to discuss it here. In the epilogue I say that in order to regain the West's past glory and to resuscitate the good economy, widespread indigenous innovation and grassroots dynamism must be restored. Institutional and policy fixes can help, but the economy is not a machine that can be cranked up or down at will. It is a living, organic entity composed of all those individuals who participated in it and their ideas and culture. The mix of modern values that first brought forth the modern economies must be reaffirmed and strengthened if the nations of the West are to have a future of mass flourishing. Thank you.
0: Well obviously we have great appreciation for the comments that uh, Professor Phelps has offered and with uh, interest and enthusiasm I now invite our audience to raise questions and see if we can elicit some further interesting thoughts. Gentleman in the blue shirt in the back, and would you please say who you are when you start your comments?
2: Yeah. I'm Mike Joffe from Imperial College. Uh, thank you, Professor Phelps, for a really interesting talk. Um, you focus very much on what I might call a sort of cultural movement kind of perspective and just say in passing, because it's not my main point. That I'm not sure it has ended because with the internet and all the, you know, the innovations that have come out, particularly out of America in the last few years, I, I don't quite share your pessimism that the culture of flourishing and innovation has ended. I think it's become a bit um, kind of diverted down a particular path that we could talk about whether or not that's desirable. But my question is about, it's a more structural one, that I don't think that what you so well described, flourishing could have happened without a more prosperous economy developing from the early 19th century in the case of Britain and the US and um, what seems to me to be missing from what you're talking about is some kind of more structural idea about the economic system making this possible and how that works and uh, so a kind of um, after if you like a more mechanical uh, kind of thing about what's underlying it that made all this possible.
1: Thanks very much for um, the interesting point and the interesting question. Um, (coughs) uh, I I, uh, should have um, commented uh, when I was talking about the decline of dynamism that became apparent in in, uh, the 60s and 70s, first in Europe and then uh, finally in the US. I should have said that it's not as if every company has become less dynamic. Um, it, things don't necessarily work that way. It's not necessarily the case that every industry has become less dynamic. In fact, that's, that has not happened. But what, what I think has happened is that there is less innovating in the aggregate <coughs> And when I talked about this, this, the the striking slowdown of total factor productivity growth in 1972 in the United States, uh, that 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 strongly points to a d- sharp decline in the aggregate rate of innovation uh, in the uh, in the economy. Uh, and what I think has happened is that um, the, the, there's been a narrowing of innovation, and there, the, there are innovators who have uh, operated in the uh, so-called technology areas, uh, and they, they have tended to concentrate along the West Coast. But in the great heartland of the country, uh, most of those large corporations, uh, are are um, are not not uh, innovating as they used to do. Now, if you've read a little Schumpeter, uh, you will you will know that uh, you will know Schumpeter's claim, which is reasonable enough that 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 most new products come from new enterprises. So you might say, well, we don't care about those large established corporations there in the heartland. Uh, they they never did innovate, but that's not really true. Uh, the large corporations uh, always have, have always uh, until recently have have always done um, uh, incremental innovations and sometimes more than incremental uh, innovations, um, as uh, Will Baumol uh, liked to uh, say. That likes to say um, they innovate. They innovated because they had to. They had to innovate in order to uh, fend off possible new entrants, and so they had to be at the frontier. Uh, And um, I think um, I think. the, 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 the um, decline in the uh, supply of innovators, so to speak, uh, to put it in, 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 in concrete terms, uh, has also given um, uh, large enterprises a kind of uh, free pass uh, to raise markups and, and and raise uh, the profit share in the American economy, uh, w- which of course lowers real wage rates. If profits go up, then wages go down, absent uh, any change in productivity and a few other things. So uh, <clears throat> I think that's the the. the uh, Part of the the social not, not only not only a um, little hard to squeeze everything in into uh, twenty eight minutes but not only uh, has the fallout not only has the incidence of the decline of innovation fallen on uh, employment and uh, unemployment but it it's uh also uh, uh, produced a, a, a one-time downshift in in the path of uh, real wages. Um, well, uh, so now I, I, I okay. Let me come to your 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 point. You said isn't isn't it the case that we the countries needed the prosperity in order to have dynamism, or in order to practice dynamism, or in order to exhibit dynamism. Um, that's a neat idea, but the um, uh, what, what I think is a weakness of it is that, um, in fact, there was no rising standard of living in Europe between, let's say, 1200 and 1815 that we could say that we might, that we might speculate as having finally triggered uh, or permitted or allowed uh, uh, a burst of uh, that, that triggered and, and allowed a, um, a transformation of economies into dynamic ones. Um, as I said, at, at, the outside, at, the, at the outset, in the uh, medieval economies, the feudal economies, and in the mercantile capitalist economies, wage rates were dead in the water. As a matter of fact, even in Britain, between 1750 and 1800, when there were, when there were beginning to be some innovations in, in the textile industry, uh, wages actually fell. They had risen a bit between 1800 and 1850, but, uh, it's, it's, it's striking. It's striking that, uh, in this period prior, prior to 1815, wages could drop as easily as they could rise.
0: Okay. Great. Thanks. Robert Wade is in the fourth row in a black jacket.
3: Yes, thanks, Robert Wade. Um, Between 2009 and 2012, um, 95% of the increase in US national income accrued to the top 1% um, of the population. Um, I wonder whether you think that um, that kind of income concentration constitutes um, a depressing effect on or makes an, a depressing effect on the rate of innovation and um, if you do then um, what kind of actions by the state or by other actors do you think should be undertaken in order to curb um, income concentration at the top?
1: Um. <coughs> Well, I've just argued that the slowdown of innovation caused a a rise in the share of income received by the top 1%. Now the question is whether there's also operating a reverse causation. Uh, That is to say, uh, the rise in the income earned by the top 1% has operated to slow uh, innovation. I don't I can't think of a of a, a strong genuine causal mechanism going from here to there um but um I do think that s- the the rise in the, the incomes of the top 1% is not just because of the slowdown of innovation it's also because of a rise of rent seeking and um, w- which is a, a i think a, a part of a, a rise of materialism a part of Never mind making the company better. Never mind having exciting work for the employees. Just show me the money. Um, the corporations now are uh, CEOs estim- appear to have estimated that uh, they would do better to spend their time rent-seeking uh, than uh, innovating. And uh, in any case, um, they, for the economy as a whole, that was unfortunate. But for the, but for the rent seekers, it appears to have worked out pretty well. I understand that um, Saez, the um, the econometrician of income distribution at uh, University of California Berkeley, uh, has estimated that uh, uh, some three percentage points of the rise in the income of the top one percent he he is um, in his view in his findings uh, attributable to um, a rise in rent-seeking government contracts being spread around uh, to pressure groups and and to key contributors and and powerful industries and powerful corporations um, um, and and as i said in in, in my talk in my uh, summary of my book um, i do um, i do um, i do argue that uh, Mm-hmm. rent-seeking um, has uh, which is a kind of corporatism the government circumventing the market to boost these people and hold back these people this this corporatism is um, very bad for uh, very bad for innovation okay um, there's a woman in the back can I have beige okay.
4: Hi, my name is Maria, I'm from the LSE and thank you for your talk. Uh, I'm looking, I'm thinking about your framework on corporatism and the importance of individualism as well and individual values in the modern era. And I just wanted to see what your comments were on uh, India and China's ascent. I know it's not necessarily what you've talked about today, but in India thrives itself on being individual but seems to be rather chaotic, uh, while in China it has state-planned entrepreneurialism or state-planned capitalism. So since Deng Xiaoping's reforms, we have seen increases in allowing for entrepreneurial activity, but the economy still has five-year plans that have a sense of uh, central planning. Uh, Given your framework, could you give me some comments on those economies and the dynamism for innovation?
1: Well, I spent a lot of time in China, and when I started going there regularly, and that was around 2010, um, I, I naively thought that um, China was um, decades and decades away from, uh, from indigenous innovation, that they would have to go on copying from the West for a long time before uh, there was a, um, a critical mass of people, who, young people who were willing to stand apart from the group or, or buck convention or, or, or do do the uh, do the unusual thing and and um, I think we can still see that in in Chinese society as a matter of fact there there have been news items recently uh, that uh, Chinese families are putting pressure on on their uh, their 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 children who are graduating from Tsinghua University and Peking University to go into the public sector because that's where the prestige is that's where the job that's where the job security is and and um and so forth so uh, that suggests that China has a uh, a long road to hope um, a long way to go before it is significantly uh, before before it, it produces uh, significant indigenous innovation uh, per year. Um, but <coughs> some data I've seen suggests that that's too pessimistic a view that, that it, it, it looks like there's already a fair amount of indigenous innovation in China. It's just that it's growing so much because of other forces, like exogenous, uh, like, like technology transfers from the West, that, um, and, and also the diffusion. As, as, as the new technologies which are adopted by uh, companies on the West Coast, um, diffuse, Gradually over the economy as a whole, productivity goes up strongly, even if there's no more no more uh new new um, technologies being introduced to the companies in the uh, along the coast so at least uh, uh, so so even but 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 i but the numbers i see make me think that even if we allow for a lot of diffusion and we allow for a lot of technological transfer still going on the seven percent growth is hard to explain unless we think that something like two percent per annum is uh, is going on in terms of uh, indigenous uh, innovation so (coughs) China has the problem that Europe had—that unfortunately, um, American innovations slowed so so sharply in around 1972 that uh, it has become possible for Europe and China to run out of technologies uh, in the West that they could transfer. Of course, it's. uh, there's the further point that American companies are are putting up a stiffer re, stiffer resistance to to um, uh, Chinese transfers um, of, of uh, technology than they might have in in the early years when they didn't think it was a, a serious problem. Uh, with regard to India. Um, I'm sorry, I I, I don't know nearly as much about the Indian economy as as I happen to know about the Chinese economy, Um, and and, and, uh, I don't don't know what to say about uh, individualism uh, in in China. Of course, we're all impressed by the uh, new startups in Bangalore and the... um, And, and there must surely be some indigenous element in that innovation it can't be one hundred percent transfer from uh from the uh west so <coughs> India has already had an important breakthrough in indigenous innovation but uh as some of my Indian friends say it's It's a very big country, and and Bangalore is just a very small part of the uh, economy. Not only in terms of uh, uh, number of persons working there, but also in terms of um, domestic product. So, so um, in one respect. Uh, then China uh, in one respect India is uh, seems seems to have gotten a jump on China in terms of indigenous innovation I don't know I don't know enough about India to say whether it also has a jump on China in terms of uh, individualism and and vitalism and and self-expression do you can you uh, Give me your own opinion. I'm sorry.
4: I didn't mean to make it a discussion. But um, there's a great book by Karen Khanna who talks about billions of entrepreneurs and he compares uh, India and China's development since the 1950s. And in uh, India's case, he says India puts a lot of um, emphasis on individual rights and property rights. Uh, he doesn't make it a conjecture between democracy and not democracy. He talks about the importance of property rights. And in India, um, property rights are upheld up to the point that it can actually create stasis in the economy, which is why there's problems in infrastructure. But at the same time, things like uh, financial transparency and allowing for individualism allows for a lot of entrepreneurial activity outside the public sphere. Mm. While in China, he makes a conjecture that uh, China's some of the smartest people go into the public sector And state-planned capitalism actually allows for a lot of entrepreneurialism. In his hypothesis, he says the state is the entrepreneur. And it creates a different type of dynamism in terms of growth. But I mean, this is someone else's hypothesis, it's not mine.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: Thank you. Okay, great. There's a gentleman. If you still have a question in a suit near the door to the right, gray suit, jacket. Yeah. Thank you. Hello, Gilles de I am a Mm -hmm. banker. Uh, Professor, what are your thoughts on intellectual property protection? Would you say that um, um, the system is antiquated or simply is abused by large innovators or pseudo innovators to the expense of uh,
2: grassroots innovators?
1: Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think uh, the patent system has um, um, run aground, so to speak. Uh, I think. Um, uh... the congress has used very poor judgment in uh... evergreening uh, patents so uh, every time the patents look about ready to expire at the disney corporation uh, the congress passes yet another extension of of the patents and then there is the further point that uh... Uh, as, as, as somebody put it um, well the, 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 there 's a forest of patents out there, and a startup company can 't be sure uh, what patents patents it might be treading on if it does this or if it does that so <coughs> a startup is going to need lots of lawyers to to wouldn 't need if, if if an entrepreneur were to start up a, a new enterprise entrepreneur would need lots of lawyers to to help uh, thread the way through uh, the uh, in, in available uh, records on on what is patent and what is not, and what the legal uh, what the legal uh, strength of the of those patents might be. So this is a, a very serious uh, matter. And uh, somebody said uh, that if he were um, starting up an an enterprise again, he would have to. Hire more lawyers than engineers. Um, So, so, um, I've. uh, The book doesn't uh, say so, but it doesn't venture to say so, but I I, I suspect that it might be what might be good to. Declare a suspension of all patents, um, or even a termination of all patents, and then start fresh. Because the idea of of allowing companies and individuals to patent new ideas is a good one, but uh, we, we, we've uh, run. It, we've we've uh, we've it, it's. Uh, it, 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 so much is now patented that um, it's counterproductive. But if, if we were to start from zero again, then uh, we could have the benefits of patenting without, for another hundred years maybe, without the, uh, the backfire that um, future uh, innovation is slowed down though present innovation is encouraged.
0: Okay, in the yellow shirt up in the front and then in grey in the downstairs. So, the upstairs, yellow shirt in the front. Thank you. Szemek uh, Maholak, student from Dalit College. Uh, sir, what is your opinion uh, which kind, what kind of um, reforms, what kind of uh, reform, reforms should uh, governments of less developed countries implement Uh, in order to make the environmental, uh, business environment, economic environment more uh, positive to uh, faster, more rapid
1: uh, speed
4: of innovation?
1: I I didn't get all the Uh, questions. Are are you asking me what I think about... Innov- steering innovations towards towards environmental implement
4: should be implemented in order to make
0: the environment economic environment more positive to, to
4: sp- yeah. faster speed of innovation
1: <coughs> Well of course libertarians love to point out that, that many uh, government um, initiatives, uh, aimed at um, Im- improving the environment such as the, um, the soy uh, fiasco uh, ended up not only being unprofitable but uh, actually causing people's deaths from starvation in some parts of the world and <coughs> There is a, a sense among economists that um, there's a huge uh, tendency in uh, government I- initiatives aimed at um, the environment. Uh, huge tendency for for these initiatives not to pay uh, close attention to uh, the system effects and. Or, uh, uh, of the uh proposed um steps Um, on the other hand um I, i don't really agree with the criticism oh my goodness you shouldn't have the government uh taking innovative steps uh toward the environment because they always lose money. I think it's okay if the government loses money. The government spends money for for worthy ends, as well as some less worthy ends. It's okay if the government loses money uh, for some worthy ends. Uh, In the private sector, too, there is always the possibility of failure and the possibility of losses, but that doesn't cause us to, 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 to wish that the private sector would stop investing or stop trying to innovate. So um, it's, it's a complicated uh, matter, um, but yes, a, a, a little more business sense would be desirable in the public sector in its planning of uh, initiatives and innovations. Uh, with environmental objectives in mind. Um, but on the other hand, uh, we can't we, it, would, it might it might well be very dangerous to rely upon the, the private sector to save us in time from serious and irreparable uh, damage to the environment. So we'll have to go in, in, in significant part in the governmental direction but uh, we'd, we'd better go about it a great deal more carefully than we've done so far. Okay.
0: The man in Gray in the last room.
4: Hi. I'm uh, Felipe, a student here from the LSE. Uh, you talked about the importance of innovation and values for economic growth, uh, but I was wondering if you would, can comment on the role of human capital as well for economic growth. Do you see it as a precondition for innovation, as complementary, or as <coughs>
1: Well, first of all, I have to insist that, that my book is not about the importance of innovation for economic growth. It's about the importance of innovation for prosperity. And prosperity I defined as consisting, as having, as, as having the crucial element that the, uh, of, of non material benefits. We've long since reached the point where, where we um, well, we put it another way. In my long career as an economist, I've seen a lot of discussions, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, practices in in policy and, and, and elsewhere, and. Um, like, for example, the um, uh, work on uh, rent-seeking. The, 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 uh, the best work on rent-seeking so far has argued that there is a loss of efficiency from having uh, ties between governments and, and pressure groups uh, leading to rent-seeking and patronage, patronage, patronage. Um, because resources don't go where uh, efficient, where perfect efficiency demands they go. So maybe we maybe our economies in the West were, are, are, are 10% less productive than they would be if we if we got rid of that rent-seeking. Now with, with, with a uh, GDP in, in, in America of sixteen trillion dollars, uh, you wonder well how high does the does the gross domestic product have to be? Uh, when are we going to get off this uh, growth in the merry-go-round um, and, and start thinking again about the deeper more meaningful uh, satisfactions uh, of life. And uh, the thesis of my book is that um, uh, (coughs) modern values spurred a desire for interesting jobs, innovative jobs, challenging jobs and uh and that led to uh job satisfaction and uh to um a prospering that we can identify with the philosopher's notion of of flourishing um, now now you say that um now you say that um you you ask about uh innovation for economic growth so it's just not the way i think about the case for innovation uh i think the case for innovation is that that's what the good life is that the good life depends upon it but but maybe can you adapt your question uh (laughs) so so that after after my diatribe,
4: sure I'll try again. Um, so, what do you think is the role of human capital for? Okay, yeah, human
1: capital. <laughs> um, I've never been a fan of human capital. Um, <laughs> not, not that I've never acquired any. <laughs> I hope. Uh, as a matter of fact, that. The, the idea that productivity is a function F of capital, man hours worked, and human capital, H, uh, ha, has, has always bothered me a lot. Though at first, of course, I, I couldn't think of, of um, all the reasons I, I was later to have why it bothered me. Um in my story about uh prosperity, but also my, the, the, the 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 byproduct of my analysis, which is a, a story about productivity growth, in, in, in my story, um certainly things would not go well without literacy and without numeracy. Um and uh, without uh, uh, a, a common, without a without a uh, core level of, of knowledge, but I I don't think that um, an increase in education expenditure that would cause Chicago labor economists to estimate that human capital. Had increased by say five percent. Uh, I don't think that that would have any significant effect on anything. I don't think we wouldn't raise productivity by five uh, percent. It it might raise it might raise output per man hour a little bit. Now, more more interesting the, the question i think the 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 most interesting part of of, of uh, the question is what what does human what might human capital contribute to innovation um, We used to think that innovators were people with maybe a high school diploma at most but who had incredible powers of imagination and insight coming from their business experience. And they were able to uh, come up with amazing ideas that that proved to be innovative, that that proved to be adopted. And economists joke that... um, gee, it'll be nice if someday the entrepreneurs have had two years of college. And we did get to the point, that point where uh, entrepreneurs had two years of college. Um, But um, obviously, economists who specialized in uh, innovation we're not very impressed by the importance of human capital uh, for innovation. But now, it's, and now uh, two things I've learned recently, um, <clears> or <throat> well, maybe one thing, uh, that I've learned from uh, doing some empirical research with uh, raicho Bojilov at the Polytechnic um, University in, in Paris we learned that startup entrepreneurs are more likely to achieve growth of their startup companies the more education they have. So this was a real revelation to me. I hadn't I had I wouldn't have I would not I wouldn't have thought to predict that. I might not have dug my heels in, might not have dug my heels and said, no, that can't be. But I, I, I wouldn't have thought to predict it. It caught me by surprise. And and and, um, and that that fed into the issue about China, because at the same time that uh, Cho and I were delivering a paper at a Beijing conference, uh, put on by the Center on Capitalism, Society, and uh, the New Wadu Business School. I've got to say that. Uh, at the same time that I was giving that, uh, that Raicho was giving that paper at that conference, um, the newspapers were full of stories about Chinese families trying to push their their brightest students into the public sector, which they could get into. The less bright students couldn't. And 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 then Raicho and I realized, my gosh. The the families are, are are going to deprive innovation of the educated startup entrepreneurs that will be especially valuable for 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 innovating. So um, so um, so it turns out after all that that uh, human capital. Uh, it is important, and of course, uh, one reason maybe why it's now more more important than it was before is that innovating has gotten so technical, especially out out in uh, Silicon Valley, and and so uh, uh, human capital is more important than it was uh, 50 or 100 years ago.
0: Man in the center, blue shirt. Right yeah so you seem quite
3: skeptical of um uh, the role of the state uh, in providing innovation and public sector innovation and so on but i mean there are examples of where even in silicon valley they they build upon public sector innovations, and that's how they uh, what? i'm sorry create the,
1: new the examples of what
3: uh where um even in silicon valley um Uh, private sector companies build on innovations that that started in the public sector and develop them and commercialize them. Um, The example I'm thinking of is Siri, which is a a feature in the iPhone. Um, And that started off with a a US Department of Defense project, I think it was, I forget which bit. Um, And so I was wondering, firstly, whether you thought there was any role at all for state-sponsored for the what? For state-sponsored innovation.
1: State-sponsored innovation, yeah.
3: um, And secondly, on a, on a broader point, um, you talk a lot about a, a culture of innovation. Do you think that government, with its kind of bully pulpit, I suppose, on, on um, public opinion, has any role to play in, in changing attitudes or, or changing culture or not?
1: Thanks for that question. Um, I'm suspicious of, of state sponsored innovation, but that doesn't mean that uh, in, in a doctrinaire way I would want to see none of it. That, I, that in no case would I want to see it. I think that you have to take the. Unfortunately, I think we have to take these cases one at a time. And uh, of course, that, that's very unfortunate because it means we can't have a rule. <laughs> if we have a rule, we could get a, a tight control on state-sponsored innovating so it doesn't get out of hand and, and, and drive out um, innovating that's not state-sponsored. Uh, but, in any case, so I, I, I don't think, as a rule, that we can say that. that, that I don't think that. that um, I don't think we can. Uh, I, I don't. Um, I don't take the position that uh, state-sponsored innovation is always and everywhere uh, a mistake. But um, I, I would say. Th- for all the limitations of, of the view that I'm going to try to enunciate, uh, I would say that we have to ask the question, why does the state need to sponsor this innovation if it's so good? Why, haven't, why hasn't the private sector gone near it? There's a presumption we, we want on the whole, I understand there are exceptions, but we want on the whole innovative activity that pays for itself in profits at at the end of the at the end of the day so why would we want this particular state why would we want the state to sponsor this particular innovation if it's not profitable, if it's not seen as profitable entrepreneurs may get it wrong, it may be very profitable if they didn't understand it but it was not seen as profitable. Is that because the entrepreneurs didn't understand, didn't make a mistake, didn't understand that uh, we're not going to do, do just one of these state-sponsored things? We're going to do five of these things or and then they're all going to uh, come together and f- fertilize one another. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of stories you could tell. But <coughs> at the very least, uh, there has to be a um, a test. A, 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 a profitability test at the beginning. We don't. Nobody. There's nobody can say whether it's going to be the state-sponsored project is going to be profitable or not. But we're going. But at least we can ask. That we, at least one can investigate the question: Why didn't the private sector go for it? People can be interviewed and, 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 and so forth. Um, I like particularly the second part of the question. So I. I um, I want particularly to follow that up. Um, the second question is the government is can the government do something uh, that would uh, help to uh, support values in a constructive way that would uh, help help our nations and help help our help our help our society help um, help people to live lives of, of um, sufficient richness uh, I think so uh, I think there's a, a, a lot of things that uh, the government uh, can do I think the government has to completely overhaul corporate governance to rid corporations of the extreme um, uh, Short-termism that that uh, that pervades uh, business, that pervades uh, the large corporations and the overpaid uh, CEOs these days. But and, and I would like to see a, a an overhaul of the financial sector. We don't we don't want these behemoth banks, and we don't want investing on the on the principle of diversification. We want people of judgment and experience to be making decisions about who gets loans and who doesn't get loans. Um, We've we've got a terrible financial system now. It's just a a, a headless thing. Um, Talk about rudderlessness, which the corporatists didn't like. Uh, This is... uh, Really bad. It doesn't even pretend to be looking at the direction of the economy. You just take the money and divide it up in proportion to uh, the, um, the the availabilities of the assets. It's incredible. Uh, so that's the second thing. But I think you mentioned something about 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 values there, which I picked up on. I, I think the government has to. In the United States, the federal government is, is only in a backdoor way uh, contributing to education, so much of the schooling, high school, uh, for example, is, is, is an elementary school, is, is done at the um, local level with uh, some uh, help from the states. But where's the federal government, which has the big bucks? and which can raise a lot of tax money because people can't escape. They can escape one state and move to a low tax state, but they can't so easily escape from national taxes. So the government has the resources in which to, to launch um, huge improvements in education. And, and uh, uppermost among these, in my opinion, is uh, restoring to education uh, an exposure to uh, the great classics, stories of adventure, stories of fantasy, um, beginning with uh, some of the epic Greek uh, figures and going right through um, the, the vitalist literature of Cervantes and Shakespeare, and to the uh, more more recent uh uh, adventure literatures, Jack London and H. Ryder Haggard and Raphael Sabatini, and all those people that I grew up with when, when I was a kid, they should all be brought back. Uh, when I was saying that towards the end of my book, I wanted to say, and by the way, let's bring back the superheroes of the comic books. <laughs> well, I chickened out because I thought, was afraid that some hostile reviewer would lampoon me for, for, for such a silly statement. But a couple, a year and a half ago, maybe it was a year ago, um, and I was in uh, Washington D.C., gave a, a talk there, and afterwards, uh, a lady came up to me and said that she's teaching immigrants, fresh immigrants. Uh, the English language and other things and she's using the comic books not only because it's a good way for them to learn English but also it's it's it it, it, it they they get a they capture at least what was at one time the spirit of, of the uh, alive in the nation and um and, and maybe it also builds up their sense of fantasy and, and, their, and, their, and, and nourishes their desire for, um, for um, uh, adventure and, and exploration. Now, before you leave thinking that this, this is really, we've really descended into nuttiness now, I have to tell you uh, that my wife and I were in China In September, with a a group of having dinner with a group of uh, Chinese entrepreneurs, most of them startups, and a man came sat next to my wife. I guess we had had met him in his factory early in the day, and and the first thing he said to 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 my wife is. I was inspired to start my company by Spider-Man. <laughs> so, I think, you know, it's a serious, this is serious stuff. I think really we're 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 losing it. Um,
0: if you'd endorsed Spider-Man in the book, Ned, I think you could have actually gotten a product placement payment here, <laughs> and it would have been a good business. The book, Mass Flourishing, is for sale outside. I um, encourage you to buy a copy, and then uh, Ned will stay here. Press Phelps will stay here and sign books here. So if you want to come around, I'm sorry we've run out of time. It's been an engaging discussion. Thank you for all, all for being a part of it.